Okay, the story this time is called Kimberly Clockworthy, The Battle of Bards. Deep in the forest, there was a clearing occupied by a few tree stumps, a humble lake, and a handful of artists, two, count them. A century previous to the vaguely medieval time period in which this story is set, lumberjacks had come and cleared out this section of the forest. While there had been talk of using the land cleared around the woodland lake for the construction of some sort of luxury holiday inn, they had never come fully to fruition. The wood from all of the trees had been shunted off to a foreign, again vaguely medieval land, to be used in the mass production of clogs. Clogs were not a valued commodity in this land. They were fond of music here, and so, while wood would usually be prized in that regard, the instruments most beloved by the people were those that were quite old, and thus, a market did not exist for new instruments. The construction of musical instruments in this land had ceased long ago, as all musicians much preferred to play an instrument that had been passed down to them, century to century, ancestor to ancestor. Now, this created immense difficulty for those looking to acquire an instrument. Maybe they wanted it as something to do on the side to ensure that harvesting weeds with a very long scythe didn't get just too monotonous, because, frankly, those who owned instruments made of wood would guard them with more care than a warrior wielding his most beloved sword. They would not part with them easily. Some had even died for their instruments. Only some, a handful of people. Can you hear that lady sitting on the stump beside the lake? Her father was just one of those men. While carrying a pot of boiling hot tea up to his quarters, you see, he had knocked his lute, which had been leaning coolly against the wall. His instincts took over, dropping the pot of tea as his hands shot to correct his mistake. He was successful, and the lute was saved. But this came at a dire price, and he knew it. The boiling hot tea splashed all over his groin area, and as he ran to the river and jumped in, he realized he could not swim, and he drowned. One of his daughters, Kimberly, had inherited the loot, and she was quite pleased about it. She played it for most of the day and a bit of the night. The sound echoes through the dense forest surrounding the clearing. She's not too bad. You might even call her a good loot player were it not for the fact that she spent most of her time practicing songs written by others, when she very well could be writing her own. She spends a fair bit of time quarrelling with the painter Archibald as well. He sits by the rocks each day, just as she does. 
Whenever she feels frustrated about the progress of her playing, or upset about one of her compositions, she takes it out on poor old Archibald, who she mocks for being colorblind. He ignores her for the majority of the time and continues to pay just the same. When such an event would occur, Kimberly would often chide that he must be deaf on top of that. However, the silence following this would make her feel that she had lost a fight that the opponent had not even involved themselves with in the first place. So, she would return to her lute playing at a slightly higher tempo, an artistic choice she made in order to express her rage. She would be done fighting with him when she had made her way out of the forest, out of the village, and into the heart of the greatest city in the land, maybe even across the seas, and perhaps around the world. She just had to nail this chord progression first. One morning, the birds were crooning in time with the rustle of the wind through the trees, and after trying to make her loot cooler by carving a small scratch into its body and accidentally making it look deliberate, Kimberly strolled over to the lake to bully Archibald. She felt a bit creative today and decided to find something new to make fun of him for. She was just about to mock the preliminary pencil sketchings on his canvas when her eyes got caught on a sheet of paper that the painter had pinned to the corner of the canvas. Printed out in thick black ink was an image of a young, lanky man dressed in a frilly shirt and something that was not necessarily a skirt, but it wasn't exactly a kilt. In his hands, he held a stringed instrument, similar to a lyre, but with a touch of exoticness which made it more intriguing to Kimberly than the man itself, although it seemed that Archibald would disagree considering the quality of the sketchings he had made of him. Below, in neat handwriting, read, Need a tune to make you smile? Peter's just the one to dial. Kimberly stood for a moment, while Archibald continued to draw. Who was this man? What was this instrument? What does it mean to dial? She demanded to Archibald that he give her the answers to the first most question, to which he responded, after a pause, that he was a travelling bard that he had seen play in a bar up in town just the evening previous and he had been so taken up by his appearance that he had decided to paint his likeness. The canvas, he explained, was a far more elaborate way than an ink press could ever fully articulate. She then pressed on to find out if he was still playing at the bar. He said that he was likely about to move on, and would likely be travelling along the path through the forest. While it had struck Kimberly as strange that the painter was so well informed about the man's plan, she counted herself lucky that she may still have time to catch him. Without a thought as to what she was doing or what she was going to do when she found the man, was it, was it Peter? She fetched her instrument, slung it across her back and shot into the forest in hopes that she might be able to intercept his carriage through the thoroughfare.
She sat along the dirt road for quite some time, and just as the fear that she had missed her opportunity was about to overcome her, a man, quite like the man in the image, made his way around the bend and into her sight, air exhausting itself out of his lungs with every step as if he was an accordion. He was accompanied by none other than a bag he wore lightly. You there, she exclaimed. His head rose from its shrunken posture to meet her gaze. Me, he responded. His voice reminded her of a well-lacquered floor. This was something she found impossible to describe in any way but that. Yes, you. What is that instrument you have on your back? He stood for a moment. Perhaps, Kimberly thought, this was because she had correctly guessed the contents of the bag that she would not know because she was a stranger. Who are you? he asked, taken aback by her tone. I'm Kimberly Clockworthy. She took the lute from off of her back. And I can play music too, see? He stood for a moment. Music is to be heard, not to be seen, lady. And while I see that you carry a piece of wood with some strings wound up along pegs, my ears fail to pick up the sound of anything comparable to music. Even your voice lacks the character of melody that many attribute to the appearance of ladylike character that you would otherwise exude if you were to continue to keep your mouth shut. I'm not exactly sure what you mean by that. Play me something, and I will play along if you wouldn't mind. Certainly. She looked around for a place to sit, and when she could not find one, she sat herself on the ground. The man, who had not actually introduced himself, but she knew to be Peter, produced the delicate stringed instrument from his bag. Between the two sat silence, however, the sound of hammering, the musical accompaniment of colonization, fell into their focus. It was without a verbal discussion that an agreement was met to play along to this sound, echoing out of the city. Kimberly sighed, and after tapping her foot in order to lock herself in, began to play. To test the waters, she decided to play softly and slowly, so that she may pick up her pace later. Like a chess match, she wanted to test her opponent with her first move, measure his character. She began with just this in mind, her hands fell across the frets, and produced a simple yet memorable line. She intended to make this a motif, if her memory would allow her to do so. She was holding a sustained note, about to continue into the next phrase, when her opponent cut her section short. His fingers recited a well-remembered line twice through before striking a chord. She hadn't expected the stakes to rise so quickly, he had already introduced chords into his playing. She fired back with a rhythmic back and forth between the bass note and chord. This was matched with something along a similar theme, although Kimberly sensed more confidence in Peter's measured response. There was something of a sadness in his melody, while Kimberly had only been playing notes in key. Should she even be playing in key? 
She had decided to mix it up a little bit. Peter made no attempt at patience as he ripped through another scale just as Kimberly was landing on the final chord. She responded the best way she could. Why play fast, she reasoned, when you can play with the soul. People who don't have much like to think they have something that those who have more than them don't have and can never properly acquire. And Kimberly was no exception from this rule. She began by playing fast, but she landed off beat, and while she had intended to slow her pace gradually, she fell back into a slow pace in order to coordinate herself. But it was too late. She knew that she had been bested. She ended her melody on a few straddling notes, and played one last chord. I concede. The man played an illustrious chord, making use of the many strings of his instrument. Her face sunk. She had lost. You have proven your name. You do keep good time, he admitted. When you are not trying to rush so far ahead. The compliment had not lightened her mood. While I have enjoyed myself in this strange competition, I am perplexed. Why have you made your way into the forest to engage me? Why has your heart sunk so low at such a meaningless defeat? She was unsure how to respond. Not only could she properly justify it in her head, but she was not certain she could utter a response without making it obvious that she had begun to tear up. Her voice shook as she sighed. I thought that if I impressed you, she began, you might be interested in like... She searched for the words. She wasn't sure what she had been looking for, either. Partnering up? Like, playing music together? Like, each day in the forest, I play, with some nerd who can't even paint, and I wonder how I will ever make it out. You. You could help me, and I could help you. I'm sure more people would come to see the pair of us than just the one of you. And besides, I'm more attractive anyway. The man smiled. For the record, you most definitely are not. He seemed to expect something of a laugh, but there was none in response. He continued, I much prefer to remain, how do you say, a solo act. It means I can do whatever I would like to do without anyone telling me otherwise. Perhaps you'll appreciate this? Kimberly shook her head and sniffled. So, my lady... Why do you not carve out your very own future, rather than to scratch your name into the work that I have already spent years crafting? To discard the sculpting metaphors for the time being, I think you would much prefer to do your own thing than to collaborate with me. Besides, I am much too difficult to work with. She sat up from her deflated posture. So what do I do? You know what to do, he explained. If you look into yourself, you will realize that you know exactly what to do. Subtracting a few details. Do you want to go to town? Walk there. Do you want to eat fish for dinner? Then maybe you should catch some. Many people believe in the delusion that life is more complicated, but really it isn't. If you want to play in the town, then simply do what you're doing now but in closer proximity to the people in the town. You see?
She sat in silence. She did not nod, as there was so much to take in, that to nod as if she had completely digested the information would have felt untruthful. And from one musician to another, he continued, retiring his post as forest philosopher and returning to his day job as a bard, improvising? Overrated. Improvised solos are just stretched out and boring. Where is the chorus? Many things that other musicians will pull you up on are entirely useless to you. Lay people, as in those people who make up your audience, don't know the first thing. You will be fine as long as it sounds right on a primal level. Kimberly supposed this was true, but she did not know what felt right. Anxiety always dripped through her skin when she played and could not focus on the pulse of her heart. Was her right the same right as others? Was her right right? Was her right the right right? Was she, by her shut-in nature, different from the main population? She could never truly know. She felt the warmth of light on her face as the wind parted the leaves of the trees, and a ray of light descended upon her. All there is to working is working. Was it that simple? Perhaps it was. Thank you for your invaluable advice, Peter. No worries. He packed up his things back into his bag, and he was on his way with an adjusted posture. An unlikely mentor, to be sure, Kimberly had thought, but even as he had left, that feeling of certainty of his words remained. Kimberly had always thought herself to be quite agreeable when she was spoken to directly, only to deconstruct an argument once the speaker had had their back turned, but this time she noted that her certainty did not cease as Peter and his odd instrument had rounded another bend and had disappeared out of sight. She found her way back to the clearing with some ease. Arnold was still painting, although the clouds had marched far across the sky since she had departed and the sun had passed its peak. Kimberly sat on her stump for a while, her instrument leant against a neighbouring rock. She reached to the ground while her eyes remained fixed on the smooth lake. Her hand retrieved a handful of pebbles. Her eyes deviated from their gaze to assess Archibald, who she found to be seated on his stool quite a distance away. The pebbles were of that nice, smooth, marbly type. This was the sort of pebble she could pack up into large sacks and sell in the market for prices that didn't make sense, to people who wanted their yards to look a bit nicer. Commerce had always exhausted her like nothing else, though. Perhaps Archibald would find a compliment in the act of her casting the stones at him. Despite her saturnine disposition, she smiled. This would be fun. She threw the stone like someone who had not been properly taught how to throw, but she had the natural intelligence to understand how an underarm throw would affect the curvature of the throw in a way that was less ideal than an overarm throw. Underarm throws feel a lot more graceful, she thought, as she began landing a few warning shots at the artist. Each fell short a few feet of his feet. It's the swing of it, she thought. It feels so much merrier. Again, she failed to get any nearer to her target. 
She realised why the underarm throw was considered girly. Not because girls were weak, no, but it seems that for one reason or another, people are inclined to teach men sports of strength, while women are generally encouraged to take up sports more concerned with grace, such as dance, historically fishing, I guess, and music, it occurred to her. Had Peter beaten her because he played like a man? What was the difference? Finally, after she had completely removed her stream of thought from the act of throwing, she heard a distant thud, and as she cast a glance at the artist, she found that she must have landed a shot on the canvas. It hadn't broken or anything, it had hit the top of the frame from above, as was the curve of the throw. The painter held up a fist. She knew better than to remain. She had had her fun, and the man may surely fire back with a barrage of stones of a lesser quality. The ones around the lake were quite gritty from her experience. And so, she ran quickly. She stood from the stump and made her way out of the range of fire. The excitement of this shenanigan filled her with an amusement which assisted her in losing sight of the failures of the last day. It was when she observed how she had done this that her focus moves off of the lovely foliage surrounding her and onto her terrible defeat. Perhaps she could challenge him to another duel? And this time fight like a man? What did that even mean? She supposed that Archibald might know something about being a man, so she decided that after he had cooled down and forgiven her, as he always did, she m might try to ask him about it. She turned around in the hopes that she could determine, from the colour of his face, exactly when that time would come. This, she chided to herself, was an ability that was not known to the painter. Huh, maybe she'd use that one a little later. It was just as she spun around that she witnessed the painter cast a stone with a meaningful yet imprecise underarm throw. A large rock, much larger than a pebble, arched through the air. The height, the curvature, the air in Kimberly's body stiffened, and the whimper let out by the painter indicated that he had had the same premonition. A one-rock barrage. The stone crashed down, confirming the anxieties of the sender and witness. Splinters flew from the instrument, like blood spraying from a man wounded by a round of gunpowder. It fell to the ground in a similar manner, a death that was dramatic and prolonged by lengthy observation, slowed in the mind of the viewer by the enormity of the situation. The noise arrived just after, a sound that she had hoped would at the very least sound like the strike of a mallet against a drum. But it was the sound of a cannon bursting through the walls of a warm home, erected from timber with the function of housing love. She rushed towards her loot with the speed of a wild dog. She kneeled down and picked it up from the grass. Many of the strings had broken, forced out of place like wind from the lungs. The tuning pegs, they were fine. Her eyes fell on a sight that was immediately both miserable and bewildering.
those ornate sound holes, those loved by her father, those which she admired when she was so little, with the little floral patterns dancing around the dotted circles, had disappeared. A hole, a crater, was all that remained. A perfect circle, eerily perfect, lay at the dead centre of the instrument, and while any other person who laid eyes on it may find it to be nothing out of the ordinary, she knew better. Kimberly sat herself down on the stump with the instrument in her lap, dreading the result as she chanced to pluck at one of the strings that remained intact. A perfect note. Perhaps even louder than it had been before? Perhaps her upset had led her to pluck it just a bit harder than she had intended to. She tried again. It was the same volume. In fact, it sounded more or less the same, just a bit louder. She breathed a sigh of relief. She was prepared to stone that artist to death. But she paid him no more attention. She would let him feel bad. She slung it along her back yet again, and as the sky turned orange, as if the sun had melted across the sky, she vanished back into the forest. She walked for many hours. She walked not in the direction of the village she knew as her home, but to the next one over, towards the city. She knew who she would find there. Peter, with his... whatever it was. It wasn't a lute, and it wasn't a harp. She pressed on for many hours, stopping at a few villages for food and a few hours of rest. After forty hours in the forest, she emerged, and found the city standing over her. Its walls were large. She walked closer, and she made her way past the wall. It was funny how easy it was to get in, despite the prestige and security that the height and thickness of the walls suggested was present. She sat for long hours in the square, playing whatever she damn well pleased. Coins would be thrown at her, words too, but she didn't save those like she did the coins. She found a cheap inn and slept there. She found a nice restaurant, who agreed to let her sleep in a back room. They agreed to let her stay on the condition that she was to play music to attract customers. This, she thought, was a much safer place to play than the streets, so it was a done deal. She amassed enough wealth each day that she no longer needed to rely on the will of her parents. Just as well, she thought, it would have run out quite quickly. She saved a bit, and her popularity with the city goers was met with an increase of the weight in her pockets. She lived here for many years more, until a familiar flyer found its way into the restaurant. Need a tune to make you smile? Peter's just the one to dial. He's coming to play, a man explained as he blew on his food. I've heard a thing or two about his work. That night, as she sat waiting, he arrived, accompanied by two other men. One man in his entourage was quite well built, something he used to his advantage, as he carried in an assortment of exotic percussion instruments. A flute player followed, with a strange machine with a series of levers and wooden knobs sticking out of strange angles. 
Their eyes met. He did not recognize her. Her heart sank. Had he lied about being a solo bard just to make her feel better? Perhaps. Perhaps, after so long, she might challenge him to a rematch and join his band of bards. The lights dimmed. The peculiar box was sat on a table at the center of the tiny wooden stage. What bizarre invention was this? They began with a simple tune, and as they played, Peter began to wind the box. She listened. A long sustained note. Suddenly, noise spotted from the box. She was not entirely sure what she had just listened to, but she was certain of something. She knew that she was glad she had never joined a band of such strange little nerds, and as she packed up to return to the forest, having grown tired of the precious little city with its precious little people, she smiled at the thought of making fun of Archibald for fancying such a ridiculous man and his ridiculous music.